some of the writers, they know me, they know my job. Um, and I think their perspective is that I'm the lady in charge and that if they have a problem, they need to talk to me. Tiffany, I recently had the chance to speak with someone who I believe you know, Angela Wines, the transit manager in High Point, North Carolina, which is a city just outside of Greensboro. Yes, love Angela. She is a small, sassy, spirited woman who's been leading transit in High Point for, gosh, maybe 25 plus years. And I met her a number of years ago. She's one of my favorite transit leaders. Yeah, and it was so clear talking to her that she is uh, someone who's riding the dramatic technology shifts that are shaping mobility today. And that she's also someone who so clearly lives and breathes public transit. My day can start any time as early as five in the morning if we're having a situation where we're short-staffed. And oftentimes it doesn't end until 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And I'm doing a little bit of everything in between. I am sort of overseeing operations and making sure that supervisors and drivers and everyone are where they're supposed to be. We have enough staff coverage. Angela and her team, they also design the actual bus system, like where the bus stops go and the street-by-street routes that each of the buses takes, how frequently the buses come, that sort of thing. So yeah, this is the back end of public transit that most people never see. For every bus or train you hop on, a team of people like Angela decides where the route should go, which communities it should service, and how often. And those decisions have direct consequences for the quality of life of riders. Yeah, it's a big reason why it's such a high-stakes job. And for Angela, that impact on the people in her community, that, that's what keeps her going. You were describing uh, what sounded like a stressful, somewhat hectic job with very early mornings, unexpected things happening each day, crises that need to be solved. But you've also uh, been working in this world now for, for a couple of decades. What has kept you in it? I love transit. I love the people. I love helping We're not going to always be able to have enough cars and build enough roadways, and not everyone's going to be able to afford a car. So transit is going to be an integral part of our society. Angela's been working in transportation for decades. And back in the 1990s, when she was a transit planner in Lynchburg, Virginia, her job looked really different. It looked like maps laid out on tables with markers and pens and notes and stars and stickers. That was my first task when I was in Lynchburg was to help with a route redesign. So it was like learning the existing system and then figuring out how to make the changes so to improve productivity, to provide more service. And so literally it was all paper-based, very little technology. It was a very analog process for most of her career. But in the last few years, something shifted. Yes. And now that same planning process, which would have taken days or weeks, can be mapped out on a screen, almost like a video game. She can just drag and drop around to see what kind of impact it might have on riders. And I can make sure I'm having positive impact, but also not creating any negative impacts. I can look at walking distances from bus stops. Are bus stops close space too close together? Are they too far apart? Before, if we made a change, you'd be kind of making the change, cross your fingers and hope that it didn't create a nightmare and then you'd have to start over again. And these new digital tools that Angela's using, they were put to the test in a big way when the pandemic completely upended transit systems all over the world. COVID just rocked our world. 
Just a few years ago, a massive disruption like a global pandemic would have left trans agencies struggling to adapt. And for many, it did. But there's a whole new wave of technologies making it possible for cities like High Point to adjust quickly to changing ridership levels, changing commute times, changing modes of transportation, and yes, even pandemics. It's really a whole new category of technology. Transit tech. Transit tech. In this episode, we're talking about what transit tech is, how it works, and how it's making public transit more resilient, accessible, and useful. I'm Tiffany Chu. I'm Andre Greenwald, and this is Mode Shift. A show about the past, present, and future of how we move. Maybe you've heard some of the catchy phrases for industries being shaped by digital technology and data science, you know, like fintech or edtech or health tech. Or gov tech, food tech, climate tech. Right. Transit tech is a newer category. And Tiffany, how would you define it? So as a former transit tech entrepreneur, I would say that transit tech is basically taking an older industry that's been around for forever and introducing newer, innovative, tech-enabled solutions to address challenges that the industry has faced for a long time. And it's honestly been exploding, even though public transit might be less top-of-mind industry in this country. It's quite large in that the folks who use transit, the riders, the operators, the local governments, and the industry at large is becoming so expansive that it's close to, I think, around $450 billion. Yeah, it's really incredible when you think about how little changed in transit fundamentally for more than 100 years, and suddenly technology is changing in a rapid way. It's this huge market. I think there was you know, a Boston Consulting Group study that said that it was going to grow to more than $1 trillion in the next couple of years here as a market. And, you know, and for those of us in the private sector, obviously the size of, of this market and its potential is hugely exciting. But, you know, I know both you and I got involved in this space also because of the impact that improving public transit can have on people's lives and communities across America. Yeah, it's about deploying tech for the greater good. So let's uh, get more specific. What, what use cases come to mind? Okay, so I would say there's a lot that come to mind, um, and I'll, I'll just name three. The first one that's honestly changed my life as a transit rider is the fact that you can now get real-time updates on when your bus or train is coming on your phone. And so I can look at my phone before I run out to the Orange Line station. Another one is multimodal trip planning, where you can plan multiple modes using Google Maps or Transit app or you know your app of choice to, to let you not only decide when you want to take transit, but what that trip might look like if you want to combine transit plus biking plus walking and any other number of modes. Another one which, Andre, you and I are intimately familiar with is the experience of summoning a shared shuttle uh, to take you from the train station to the office, maybe a, a first or last mile trip. And then uh, one that I'm excited to see more and more, which is just digital payment methods for public transportation. So you probably no longer need paper tickets um, all the time. And should we add, you know, software that helps planners like Angela Wines plan better routes? Exactly. Well, to help frame this category out a bit further, I chatted with a couple of experts who are following its rise. One is 
Aaron Bielenberg. He's a partner at McKinsey who focuses on infrastructure technology. And he describes transit tech like this. Transit tech, I think we would just see it as really about the full set of technologies that apply to public transportation, rail, and bus systems, and then the road systems. We're deep in the smartphone era now, and so we're all accustomed to getting easy, nearly instant access to almost everything, whether that's ordering stuff for the house or tracking our sleep and exercise, you know, identifying plants, the name of some actor, or just playing your favorite song instantaneously. And these, these expectations, they have finally come for transit. Transportation has changed more in the last 100 months than it has in the last 100 years. That's Sham Kanan. He's the former VP of planning at the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. It's a bit of a mouthful. We in D.C. just call that WAMADA. And today he works for a global design firm called HDR, where he leads their transit planning in the mid-Atlantic region. He also describes the tech-related shifts happening in this sector. On the software side, transportation for decades and decades was something that you had to go to or get to. If you were riding a transit vehicle, you had to go to the transit vehicle. You had to manage the information flow to find the transit vehicle, to understand its schedule, to have it take you to where you needed to go. If you're using a personal vehicle, you were fortunate enough to either have one or lease one. But those were sort of your options, right? getting to the hardware or buying the hardware and then navigating the system was a function of how smarter can you figure out schedules, can you figure your life around the the mobility. Transit agencies are able to push out real-time trip planning information to customers so they no longer need to pre-schedule their days. They can have that information pushed to their mobile devices or pushed to some other in-place resource like a transit screen. On the hardware side, the last 100 months, we've added so many more tools to that toolkit. So we, we witnessed the rise of personal mobility options, the scooters, the bike shares, the dockless scooters, the dockless bike shares, which are now giving us tools to fill those short distance gaps. So the transportation landscape, which, again, for the last 100 years, was a fairly static regime of fixed guideway, fixed elements for mobility that was quote-unquote public transit. The hardware and software has now brought all that transit, almost all that transportation, and almost unleashed it, made it ever-present. So you can take any kind of trip at any kind of day from anywhere to anywhere. That's a big deal. All right, Tiffany, I think we've established what transit tech is, but in order to define its edges a bit further, it might be good for us to talk about what it's not. And I think to do that, we need to revisit some recent history. I'm here for it. Just days after the ride-sharing service Lyft launched in Austin, a similar service called Uber is now open for business here. So, you know, at the turn of the decade, we saw the rise of a bunch of car-sharing services. Of course, there was Zipcar, which had started even before that where you used to work. And then we had Uber and Lyft come to cities with a model that was a big challenge to taxi cabs. And, you know, those services were hugely popular. I was definitely an early adopter when they came to D.C. And I think there were really significant benefits, especially for folks uh, who didn't have great transportation options before that. But they also started to raise some pretty serious concerns. The business model was simple. Get as many cars connected to the service and on the road as possible so that wait times for riders could be as short as possible. 
But this also put many more cars on the road, adding to congestion. And Uber was known as being particularly combative with local officials. While the company has already fought regulators from California to Massachusetts, it is the newest service, also reserved on a smartphone, that's facing the most scrutiny. And then a few years later came electric scooters. And, you know, it was a somewhat analogous dynamic. You had some very significant benefits, but it also led to concerns and tension with local regulators. Electric scooters have descended upon cities across the country, with some calling it scooter Geddon. They've rolled into places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver, and Washington. But critics complain they're cluttering sidewalks and other spaces. In San Francisco, the city has impounded more than 500 scooters. Plus, many are riding on sidewalks and without helmets, violating California law. So these two models brought a lot of new mobility choices to consumers, likely reducing car ownership. A good thing. Actually, a great thing. But they also led to bitter disputes with local governments over competition, traffic, impact on public transit. Some cities reached a breaking point and even banned these services for short periods of time. Today, the billion pounds company, matching passengers with private drivers, found its days numbered when Transport for London revoked its license to operate in the city. Uber, along with other ride-sharing companies like Grab, was ordered to halt operations in an effort to combat congestion there, an order it defied, pending an appeal. Starting today, the scooters are banned in San Francisco until the city can hand out permits to the companies for a one-year pilot program. The goal now, getting more riders to follow the rules, the learning curve in the road. I think we've seen that these ride-hailing services are extremely convenient. However, especially in our cities, we don't necessarily have the roadway capacity that we would need to take what may have been several hundred trips on a high-capacity transit vehicle and put them into ride-hailing vehicles. Coming from a city like Washington, D.C., which has historic character, has historic street widths, It's not a lot of arithmetic to realize that there's a geometry problem at some point, that you can't take a thousand customers off of a uh, subway train and put them all on a ride-hailing vehicle for a two-mile trip. We're going to get there at some point in time when the sheen falls off the shiny objects, and we'll probably have to confront this again once we get through the next three years of coming out of COVID and those travel lanes are really choked up again. But that gives us time now to be thoughtful about what that might look like. I think the point here is not at all to criticize these personal mobility options. They all have a really important role to play in getting us around. And together, they definitely can make it easier for families to live without a car or perhaps that second car that they were thinking about. But they all need to work together within the system. And I think these new forms of mobility have pushed cities to see how they can be using tech to improve service for their residents. Right. Sham talked about using this opportunity to be more thoughtful about the transition. And this is what defines transit tech. Companies in this space are using the same technological forces, from mapping to data aggregation, payment options, but explicitly deploying them for the greater good of the transit system. That's exactly what Angela Wines from the top of the show is doing in High Point, North Carolina. She's utilizing data to deliver better services to riders. I can also see a lot of the demographics in the background that I can't see if I'm looking at a paper map. I can see where the stores are. I can see where the churches are. I can see where work environment is. I can look and see 
what percentage is lower income or uh, limited English um, speaking. And you can generally make the adjustments on the fly when you find those issues. And so it, it does make for planning a better service and it makes it easier to do. And if it wasn't clear before, we should give some disclosures. The tool that Angela is using is from Remix, the company that Tiffany co-founded and led, which VIA then acquired. Right. So before my job as chief of staff to Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, I was CEO of Remix. And we worked really closely with people like Angela to make it easy for them to adapt to changing ridership and also meet equity and environmental goals. And as Angela hinted at the beginning, she witnessed some very extreme changes when COVID hit. New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority has been knocked down before. The Great Depression, 9-11, Superstorm Sandy. But its current leader says nothing matches the current pandemic by orders of magnitude. When COVID shut down everything in 2020, it didn't just hit the biggest cities. High Point's ridership plummeted too. After the initial shock of lockdowns, people still needed to get places, especially essential workers, but demand shifted overall. So Angela was forced to design new routes, new frequencies, new assignment for her drivers, and keep service running. And now we have the tools to pull a ton of data together on how the system is performing, and then visualize and execute changes really quickly. When COVID first hit and having to reduce service literally overnight, There was no way I could have done that manually and still kept the drivers going. We literally had one service end on Saturday, and by Monday, we had whole new service going. Why is it important to have good data and have it in a usable format? Like, what do you do do with that? That data helps us make decisions, but it also informs the decision makers above us, the people who provide the funding. Um, They want to know what ridership is like. They want to know how productive are we. Are we doing two trips an hour or are we doing 25 trips an hour? That data also helps us determine, is there a route that we need to either eliminate, restructure, um, do Or is it a route that is doing so well, we need to consider, do we need to add another bus? It drives all of those decisions that most people don't see in the background. Do you you think the technology and sort of planning software, has, has it changed the job of the transportation planner over the last many years? Or is the, is the job just the, you know, basically the same, but it's just made easier with these tools? The job is the same, um, just made very much, um, it's become easier to to do all those things. You can make changes on the fly, and you can see instantly what that kind of impact that has. Whereas before, if we made a change, you'd be kind of making the change, cross your fingers, and hope that it didn't create a nightmare, and then you'd have to start over again. As Angela explained, pulling together data is the key to making this all work. Tiffany, in your experience, what kind of data makes this dynamic planning possible, and how was it managed? historically, before all this tech? So talking to Remix users about how they used to do planning, it was everything from paper maps, colored pencils, sketch and trace paper, all of those things that are really important to just visualizing things you can now do digitally on a computer. And what's even more important is that you can have data that helps become an input to deciding what it is that you plan. 
So for example, I think before you had to be pretty much an expert on your whole network and just know what were the most popular routes. And now if you look at the data around ridership, so for example, boardings and alightings where people get on and off the bus, you know, those stops, that data is really important. Data around um, transit speeds, where is the bus getting stuck in traffic and, you know, where might it need some extra transit priority infrastructure or signal timing to get it across the intersection faster and keep it on time and reliable. All of these things that help optimize your traditional run-of-the-mill bus route can be now done with much more precision and much more nuance due to technology and data. Yeah, and when I spoke with Aaron Bielenberg of McKinsey, he also zoomed in on this critical data and ad analytics piece as well. We're very much in the beginning of this, and infrastructure operators, uh, whether they're private or public, are really starting to see themselves as having to have a core data and analytics capability um, at the center of their organization and having to have a more iterative both capital planning but also operational planning. Big data has transformed the way that companies are designing products and services and then serving consumer demand. And it is now starting to also impact public transit. And I think that the the push here is really the, the declining traffic and usage for many of our public transport systems um, has created a lot of stress on their economics. Um, but it also has forced, in many cases, a rethinking of really the, the quality and nature of the service they provide and has focused um, their, their need to provide services that are more tailored to their user base. So we are seeing it. Um, it's still very early stage. It's honestly not really um, specific to just transportation um, operators. It's part of the way that um, the way that we operate, but it's but it's more and more relevant for the delivery of infrastructure services. So we're at a pivotal moment in transit. We have the tech tools to do a lot of good, but we've also seen in new innovation strain the relationship with cities and lead to some controversies. Tiffany, what do you think the path forward looks like for expanding options uh, for riders and communities while also making this all work for the broader public benefit? So now that I have my public sector hat on, I think that there's a lot of things I've learned just, you know, in the last couple months about what makes a really good public-private partnership and what makes a good private partner for local government. And the first thing is about deeply understanding every city and every local government agency's needs. And yes, every city thinks of themselves as a special snowflake, and I think in many ways that's true. You know, at the same time, I think there's an element of technology, especially software as a service, that kind of wants to make the assumption that you can use the same product at scale to serve everybody. And that's what makes for a huge market. I actually think that in GovTech, the ability to kind of configure and change and tweak the product to fit the most important needs and pain points of a city or community is kind of what makes or breaks the deal in that you want a vendor, you want a, a private company that basically you feel has been in your shoes before or has done something similar before for a similarly sized city or, or community to build that trust around um, 
you know, even something as simple as data sharing, um, being able to have good data at your fingertips as a city to make good decisions at the government level. Um, I think that's, that's really clutch. That's such a good point, Tiffany. You know, I think, you know, sometimes we think, oh, the, t- the technology can just be applied the same way everywhere. But, you know, transportation and the needs of a community, it's extremely uh, local. And so uh, I think you absolutely need uh, the private sector to to recognize that and spend time listening and, and trying to solve the community's problems rather than suggesting to, you know, a city exactly how their problems should be solved. And, you know, to dig deeper into this question of public-private partnership and how to make that effective, I talked with Gabe Klein, who's led both companies and government agencies. He's the co-founder of CityFi, uh, which is a design firm focused on sustainable cities, mobility, and civic innovation. And we founded it on the belief that you can do good and be good. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you can have a great company, you can have great business practices, but you can also match that to great policymaking. And if you do it right and you layer on the right technologies when needed, you can deliver like top quality services and results and positive outcomes for society. So we basically don't believe that to make money, you need to do bad things to the planet or to people. And we think those things should be aligned in a triple bottom line strategy. And so We only work with companies that we think are at least working towards doing good things and want to partner with government, not work against government. And we work with a lot of government agencies as well, uh, state, local, federal. Gabe was a VP at Zipcar in the early 2000s. He founded Virgin's mobility service, Virgin Go. And he also started his own organic electric-powered food truck chain called On The Fly. Later, he became the commissioner of the departments of transportation in both Chicago and Washington, D.C., not at the same time. And then just this past September, he was chosen to lead the Biden administration's program to expand electric vehicle charging networks across the nation. Having worked at the front edge of both technology and government, Gabe has a ton of insight into how private sector innovators and public agencies can work together. And so when I went into government, I was like, oh, my God, like, I could maybe I, I could maybe make this less of an opaque black box and make it something that's friendly, not just to citizens, but also to companies that want to do good things. Because the things I wanted to do were good for society, whether it's Zipcar, Virgin Go, On The Fly. And I think that I felt like there was this assumption on government side that no matter if you were a giant company or a little entrepreneur, that you were basically trying to exploit the government. And I really wanted to dispel that within the agency try to set a national example that you could partner with the private sector and do good things. And we should not just assume that they're there to exploit us. So I had this sort of realization that we need to, we needed to try to create understanding between two sides. What would be your advice to, I mean, there's the tech companies that are doing their own thing and their interaction with government is, is regulatory. Then there's, as you talked about, a tech companies that are taking more of a partnership model, but You talked earlier about sort of being inside government and sort of misperceptions about the private sector, at least those companies that want to do good. What about the reverse of that? Like, what do what do tech companies kind of not understand about government and and how to interact with them? You ever seen two bucks, you know, sort of locked with their horns? There's this assumption, I think, that government 
wants to make their lives a living hell, right? And look, to be fair, like in my experience, and I wrote about my book, I mean, I experienced that too. And it creates resentment. But I think the automatic assumption that all government's the same, all local government's the same, or all state government's the same, and that they all want to sort of, you know, make it incredibly hard for you to operate is misplaced. I think fundamentally the partnership approach for the most part, 75% is the way to go. Because I look at what some companies that have gone this other way have actually spent. And the problem is that their business models may not work because of the amount of resources they have to put into lobbying, regulatory, legal. I mean, you're talking about, you know, some cases, millions of dollars a month. You know, that, that's one thing. I think companies also should be thinking about um, not just how to work with government, but also are they just pursuing scale or are they, they pursuing quality of service and profitability? Because scale doesn't always equal profitability. I think there's like just growth for the sake of growth and there's growth into particular areas or geographies that make financial sense where you either have a friendly government that wants to work with you or you've got um, some other sort of financial reason um, that makes sense. What's your uh, kind of optimistic take on the future of, uh, of mobility in our cities and the role that you think technology can play in that? So I'm actually very optimistic. You know, I think sometimes you got to hit rock bottom before you can sort of rebuild something the way it should be. I think the pandemic was devastating in a lot of ways. There, you know, I lost two friends that died, people I'd worked with. But I think it forced a reassessment of what's important in transit and transportation. And so whether it's the money that's flowed in to share mobility, whether it's the innovation and services and technology, whether it's the federal wind at our back now to electrify everything. So I feel very positive. If you asked me two years ago, I may have given you a different answer. So, Tiffany, we're coming out of this really hard period, you know, I think for everyone, the pandemic. And you and I have been on both sides of this public sector, private sector divide. Do you think that moving forward that, you know, transit technology has a role to play in helping bring our communities back? And do you, you know, what's your sense of whether the public sector and private sector should be partnering more or less to make that happen? Yeah. So having sat on the city side in both San Francisco and now Boston, I've started to formulate the opinion that there are things that cities are never going to do just based on the way that we're staffed, we're structured, the type of people we employ. And creating super disruptive, risky technology is never going to be the thing that a city is going to be amazing at. It's just not. And I think there are certain things that we absolutely need to leave it to the private sector to innovate on and partner with companies to take a much bigger leap than the city would on its own. And I absolutely think that there are disruptive technology forces that are going to be super helpful to cities in the way that they think about their relevance in the future, what their residents' expectations are, and how to meet and exceed them. So that's where I am now. Yeah, that all that all makes sense to me. And I think 
it's not always easy for people who work at cities or transit agencies to identify, you know, which company or which technology is going to help them uh, achieve their goals best. And so I, I do think that that sort of interaction uh, between the private sector and public sector in a sort of candid, honest way is so important. Uh, and I think, you know, if we do it right, I think it can just have a tremendous impact on, on people's lives. And I think we're seeing that already. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, transit agencies and cities use a variety of technologies. And it really is changing uh, people's lives on the ground, you know, helping them reach that job that maybe they couldn't reach before or attend the school that would have been really hard for them to attend before or just saving a bunch of money uh, in their pocketbooks so that they can do something else really important for their family. I mean, I think the other reality is, you know, regardless of what cities and transit agencies think in terms of uh, partnering with technological companies, there are real changes happening and they are affecting things, you know, on the ground. And so, you know, I think that's what people like Angela Wines are seeing every day uh, in her job as she adapts to changing conditions that are happening on the ground. If you were to be talking to an agency that sort of hasn't done this yet, hasn't started to adopt technology in a variety of forms, you know, what, what would you express to them if they were like, Angela, like, tell us, you know, tell us why we should be adopting technology and looking at this in its various forms. What, what would be your answer to them? I would say that like anywhere else, if you don't start to adopt the technologies and provide your passengers, the public, the things that they want, you will start to lose your ridership. Um, or if you don't lose it, you're not going to grow it um, because you aren't going to be meeting people's needs. Um, we've gotten to a day and time where our kids basically... By the time they're one, they're already using some type of smart device, a tablet, a phone, um, even touchscreen computers. And so this generation now, they want instant, quick, fast. And those are the things that we're going to have to keep up with if we want future generations to be the ones who are using our service. And that's exactly why we're making this podcast, to help people stay on top of changes happening in transportation. That's right. And coming up in our next episode, equity and accessibility, how to harness these changes so the system works for everyone. ModeShift is produced by VIA in partnership with PostScript Media. VIA's technology enables partners to create end-to-end -end transit systems, from planning better networks and streets to operating efficient public transit. Learn more at ridewithvia.com. This show is hosted by me, Andre Greenwald. And me, Tiffany Chu. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us in the app of your choice. And send a link to the transit nerd in your life. This episode was produced by Stephen Lacey, Ann Bailey, Cecily Meza-Martinez, Dalvin Abouage, and Daniel Waldorf of PostScript Media. It's also produced by Francis Cooperman, Andy Ambrosius, and Andre Greenwald from VIA. Sean Marquand composed our theme song. Sean Marquand and Greg Bilfrank mixed the show. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll stick around as we explore these topics more deeply in coming episodes. 